My name is Abby and I'm the voice behind the Evolving Love Project. In this podcast, my husband and I deep dive into the topics of non-monogamy and polyamory, drawing from our experiences of being consensually non-monogamous for almost a decade. My name is Liam. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, curious or anything in between, we invite you to join us for this conversation. Let's begin. Dr. Jolie Hamilton is the relationship coach for couples who color outside the lines. She is a research psychologist, TEDx speaker, best-selling author, and ASECT certified sex educator. Jolie also co-hosts the Playing With Fire podcast with her anchor partner, Ken. Jolie's been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, The Atlantic, and on NPR. She spent the past two decades studying and reimagining what love can be if we open our imaginations to possibility. Jolly helps people create non-monogamous partnerships that are custom-built for their authentic selves. No more shrinking, pretending or hiding required. In today's wide-ranging conversation, we discuss the jealousy triangle, parenting young adults whilst non-monogamous, what happens when you date as a relationship expert and much more. Dr. Jolie, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Evolving Love Podcast. We're so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. It is like I'm always excited to have conversations, but it's also exciting to talk to people who are partnered and like, yeah, just it's a different tone when there are more voices in the conversation. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we thought a really interesting place to kind of jump off from would be uh, recently we were listening to a wonderful episode podcast that you did with the Curious Fox uh, ladies. And you spoke a lot about um, you know different things ranging from jealousy uh, through to compersion. And interestingly, the, the Curious Fox crew, one of the first events that we ever went to um, in the non-monogamous space was actually a talk panel that they hosted. So we have a a real deep connection with them. And, and on that podcast, you actually spoke a little bit about this idea of um, jealousy and the, the triangle of jealousy. And I was wondering, yeah. do you mind explaining to us uh, this triangle of jealousy? So I love the jealousy triangle because it helps us sort jealousy out from envy, right? And we just use these words, right? We're describing our feelings and describing feelings gets messy. So it's really common that we clump jealousy and envy all together. And the jealousy triangle is a great way to help us sort those two out. And that's important because we actually can work with jealousy and envy differently. So it's great to sort them out. Um, the jealousy triangle helps us place ourselves in the jealousy equation, right? I can spot jealousy when I can spot myself if I'm the jealous one. So me, my beloved, whoever it is that I care about my connection to, and my perceived interrupter. The perceived interrupter does not have to be a real, actual human. They can absolutely be someone I have invented out of, say, an Instagram profile. It's really easy to use Instagram to invent perceived interrupters. And they don't actually have to be doing anything to interrupt. I just have to perceive that they could interrupt this valued connection. So I have these three points, myself, my beloved, and the perceived interrupter. And that's how I know jealousy is going on. And that's different from envy. Envy is about longing to be what someone else is or have what they have. So envy is a dyadic experience. It's a, a straight line between me and what they have and, or who they are. And when I sort those two things out, now I can work with them more easily. 
And so how do you suggest when couples come to you and they, they're struggling to identify which of the emotions they're actually feeling? What are the kind of some of the, the ways in which you, you interrogate those feelings and say, well, actually, maybe this is, you, you've misconstrued this. Maybe this isn't actually jealousy. Maybe this is just envy that you're really feeling. I, so I love working with jealousy and envy. I mean, obviously, I'm a jealousy enthusiast. I would not have chosen it <laughs> as my doctoral research if I wasn't interested in jealousy. But Jealousy and envy, they light us up like they, they, they burn from the inside. They feel big for most of us. And so when people come in and they're working with these feelings, often they haven't sorted them out because they're almost like too hot to handle. Like I, it's just too big or too shameful. It feels too attached to shame. Like I shouldn't be jealous. I shouldn't be envious. And some people have fallen into the same trap I fell into, which is I thought that envy was better than jealousy. Like it was just more pure, more wholesome or something. So I would never have admitted to feeling jealousy when I was in my first triad. We actually forbade the word. Brilliant move, by the way. Forbidding words. That works real well. Um, but instead, we always would say, no, 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 you're just envious. You want what they have. But it's just not that simple. Sometimes we're jealous, sometimes we're envious, and sometimes we're both. Because if you're jealous, and this is the set of questions I'll start asking, start asking people to, to self-inquire into, well, what is it about this perceived interrupter? What do you think? What are they doing? What are you seeing happen? And if they're not seeing observable behavior, okay, what are you imagining is happening? What do you imagine could go on? What do you imagine could happen in the future? And often what happens is people will start describing situations they've imagined could play out. And they might even be relatively on point. But one of the pieces that's in there is they also start talking about this perceived interrupter with a certain level of awe or mysteriousness or just uh, this like admiration. They want to be like the perceived interrupter. And that tells me they've got the jealousy envy sandwich, the sandwich no one wants. <laughs> and so when we start to notice that, now we can realize that envy can be a great motivator. Like if, if somebody has, you know, won a bunch of awards and I want to go win those awards, awesome. Maybe I'm motivated to work differently or harder or something or change my whole career path. But if somebody just is someone that that I like can't be right. Like they're just a different mm. kind of person or well, I'm five feet tall. If somebody is six feet tall, well, I'm not going to be six feet tall. That's not motivating for me. Instead, I'm probably turning that into self-deprecation or self-loathing. And these are all things that can be best unpacked with a therapist, with a coach. Like this is the stuff you want to bring in because that's your work. It has nothing to do with the perceived interrupter or your beloved. That has to do with you and your self-perception. So I do like to unpack these different terms, and it often relies on someone being willing to admit the things that they would rather not admit their feeling about their jealousy and their envy. And the relationship with jealousy and compersion, you know, I think so many people think there's one or the other. I often find that my compersion can be really high, actually, when my jealousy is also really high. And mm -hmm. I'm just, I find it so interesting because we have this idea where it's one or the other, but, you know, some of the things, you know, some of the places that I go to within myself when the compersion volume is up, the jealousy is always Ooh, very high. Uh, okay. So you are in so in luck. So you've already had a conversation with my colleague, Dr. Marie Tuin, right? Yes, yes we have. Yeah. So 
Marie is one of the top compersion researchers in the world. Um, and Marie and I have been friends for a while now, and we have recently coined a term to describe exactly what you're talking about. Amazing. Because jealousy and compersion are not mutually exclusive. They are both oppositional and not mutually exclusive, and that's mm. complicated. So when you're feeling that heightened jealousy, heightened compersion, we're calling that comper struggle. You want to feel compersive. You, you wish you were. You're trying, but you're also struggling like hell. It is hard, and the jealousy feels like it's getting in the way. And being in comper struggle feels really overwhelming because you still get all the jealousy feelings. And oftentimes people haven't figured out what to do with their jealousy. And so they don't even have access to that, that compersive attitude or that feeling of like, yeah, I can be into what my partner is receiving. I can be happy for them. So yeah, when you got those dials both turned up, you're in the comper struggle. But it is a really difficult thing I find as a partner because especially when, when Abby has come to me with these feelings of, of kind of, I guess, a little bit of jealousy, what one could say, and uh, maybe it's situational with a particular situation that's happening. It's very difficult when you're the, the partner dealing with uh, someone who's expressing jealousy to not uh, to handle in a way that is, <laughs> is, is kind and appropriate to the situation because if I were to go to Abby go, I think you're just feeling a little bit jealous. <laughs> then it's like, yeah. a, you know, waving the flag at a bull. You know, it's, it's, it's like, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm maybe not ready yeah. for, for that discussion. What are, what are the ways in which a partner dealing with a jealous partner can, can kind of, uh, I guess, de-escalate the situation or start to, to, to develop a, a more nuanced way to, to deal with that conversation? Okay, so the very first thing I want everyone to do, because I think we all struggle with this to some degree, at least with some of our partners, right? Because some of us have more disparate ways of dealing with jealousy, and some of us are more finely attuned to noticing when someone's jealous. Mm. The first thing to do is to de-stigmatize being jealous, right? Jealousy itself, it's just an emotion. It, it has information for us. And I hear this said in non-monogamous circles all the time, but I rarely see it lived, right? There's, there's saying like, oh, jealousy is just an emotion. And then there's living with the reality that when I feel jealous, it's just an emotion. If my partner says, hey, you know what? What you're describing sounds like jealousy. If I have destigmatized it, if I have de-shamed that word, then it doesn't mm. land so hard. I work with jealousy every day. Most people have not gotten to that spot where they're feeling really comfortable about it. And it does matter how that word is thrown at you. Because if your partner or if you're the person who is pointing this out, if you say, oh, you're just jealous, mm. your tone matters. The word just in front of it, don't minimize. Jealousy has started wars. Jealousy is the cause of 74% of domestic violence cases in the U.S., mm. Let's not minimize jealousy. We don't want to minimize it, but nor do we want to demonize it because mm. it's not jealousy that's the problem. Jealousy is serving a purpose. It's reminding us that we want to stay connected to someone. I don't want to turn that off. I don't want to cure it. What I want to do is figure out how I can feel it and then act in accordance with my actual relationship philosophy, with my actual agreements. I want to figure out how to just be a decent person in the face of feeling some big emotional experiences. And so we can, everyone involved in that situation can do a little bit. We can destigmatize together. We can also do that in our communities. Like any, 
any community that you are participating in, if you hear jealousy being talked about as if it is an unevolved emotion, no, it's mm-hmm. just the opposite. It is literally an emotion that evolved to keep you connected to your primary caregiver, which you mm-hmm. needed for survival. Great. that It served such a purpose. And then we didn't learn what to do with it later. We didn't learn. And so when we learn how to deal with jealousy differently, we can act differently. If your partner appears to you <laughs> to be feeling jealous, I would ask you to, to listen to what's the deeper need you're hearing under there. So if they're feeling jealous, can you listen past their words into their need? Can you listen into, hey, are they, are they sounding like insecure? Oh, could I offer reassurance? Could I remind them? And that's not just with words. Sometimes that's with my embodied reality. Can I regulate mm-hmm. myself? Can I regulate my own nervous system? Come back into a state of calm and just be present to the fact that they're currently feeling dysregulated by jealousy. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself, but we might escalate it into something bad pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. everybody's got some piece of this. One other thing I would say is if you have been, if you've been using jealousy as a weapon, let's just like not, not even try to uh, soften that. People weaponize jealousy all the time. Mm. If you've been using jealousy as a weapon in your relationship, you're going to have to have some juicy conversations about this. I would recommend listening to a couple of podcasts about jealousy, diving into, I have a jealousy roadmap, um, figure out what your jealousy is actually for. And take this on as a project together and really shift your whole relational attitude about jealousy. I love the sense that you're not trying to necessarily eradicate it or or demonize the the word itself. I feel like sometimes uh, people use jealousy as a way to almost as a way to brag about how much they love someone. It's it's like I'm so jealous of them, they're mine. You know, I'm I'm the most jealous person. You know, I just get jealous so easily. And in some sometimes I've seen certainly um, some of your friends kind of it's almost like a, a competitive jealousy. Like I'm so jealous. You know, you looked at someone. Well, I'm even more jealous than that. You know, I must love. I must love my partner even more you know is that something that you see play out in you know in these social settings as well yeah we see it play out well we could go all the way back to like greek mythology and we would see that same theme play out Mm. where right like persephone and aphrodite fighting over adonis right like who's more jealous they could have just had a threesome (laughs) right exactly (laughs) right who doesn't want to be in that threesome like where is the downside um and then we can just look at every like i don't know 98% of the songs produced about um, Mm. any sort of jealousy triangle are going to both demonize it to a degree, but also hold it up on this great big pedestal, Mm. right? Like my jealousy is a sign of the depth of my love and the length I am willing to go to to destroy anything that could interfere with it, including the relationship itself. So we mm. have these terrible models so that it's it's not at all surprising, not to mention every rom-com like ever, <laughs> but we have these terrible models. And then we, yep, in all social settings, we see there becomes a norm around jealousy. How is jealousy normalized in this particular context? So like in a local polyamory group, it might be held that, oh, yeah, you know, some amount, this amount of jealousy is like 
the right amount to have. Um, And then I could walk into my local middle school and a completely different amount of jealousy is seen as the right Mm -hmm. amount of jealousy to have. When I interview, I do research studies on both non-monogamous and monogamous people. When I interview monogamous people, they often have a different sort of baseline for how much is the right amount of jealousy to feel. And it's Mm. not none for most of them. So (laughs) that's normal. And if we buy into that, that dialogue, we are perpetuating the idea that we really don't understand jealousy. Like we're using it to be a placeholder for something else. Because if what you want to talk about is how much affection you have, what high esteem you hold someone in, let's just use those words. Let's just like, let's just Mm -hmm. use those words rather than asking jealousy to hold it for us. Now, I'm wondering if we should talk a little bit about parenting as well. Mm. Now, uh, Jolie, you are a mother. You are the mother of seven children, seven grown up children. They are. Um, They're so grown up. (laughs) Oh, amazing. I'm, I'm wondering how has it been, you know, coming out to your children and them, you know, they know about your line of work and everything that you do and all of your work in this space. We have a child ourselves. Our child is five. We're not yet having these conversations, these big conversations about relationships and non-monogamy in our way where, you know, sharing is caring and you can love more people and, you know, love is infinite, you know, in our own way. But for you, how, how have these conversations come about for you with your children? First off, yeah, it starts with those those like simple life lessons, right? And that's where it started for me too. We just, you know, you shift your your perception as an adult around like how do we talk about love? What are the ways in which I am indoctrinating monogamous standards because I like that's just how we talk about love. So detangling that for myself was important. But the other thing that happens is you know, kids will only take in what they're ready to take in. And mm-hmm. oftentimes we misunderstand what it is that they need or want for answers from us. So, you know, my children were between the ages of two and 10 when I discovered that, in fact, I had been polyamorous by orientation my whole life. I just didn't know mm-hmm. that that was a thing that one could do, nor did I know that there was a word for it. So there I was, 33 years old, and with this passel of kids, and I didn't go lightly into the polyamory. I went um, from first discovering the concept to 45 days later living in a triad. Do not wow. recommend that. No, yeah, don't do not do that. That's a cautionary tale. I share that because it's ridiculous. Like, don't do that. Um, that's like worse than any U-Haul story I have ever heard. Jumping in the deep end, my goodness. <laughs> Right. And and that's because of a bunch of things that happened, including the breakdown of my current marriage and leaving me with no place to live temporarily. Stuff mm. happened. But what that meant was my kids were instantly introduced to the idea that, oh, uh, I, I guess things don't work the way I thought they did. And they were between two and 10. And up till then, I had never had any conversation with them about anything even remotely related to anything other than monogamy, because it's all that I knew existed too. I mean, I'd heard of swingers and I had heard that people had open relationships, but that's not the same as actually understanding them at all. And what happened was, first off, my kids loved, so I blended my four biological children with three new children who now all call me mom. So lucky me. Um, And I'm still with that person, with one of the people who I left for. It's all very complicated, but 
the heart of the story is that the kids didn't need to know everything. And it was up to me as the parent to figure out what each of them needed along the way in order to make sense out of the life that they were living in a context that constantly brought them back to the idea that monogamy is not just good, but the right way and anything else is the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So we would have conversations where we would clearly talk about the fact that we were all partners or that we were all living together and we were, we were adults who were all, we all had our own bedrooms and what we like, they would see that, but we wouldn't tell them any specific language because they weren't old enough to make sense out of that. However, it wasn't too long before the oldest ones were being told stories about, your mom's a cheater. She's like, I don't understand, right? Terrible, terrible stories. And the kids needed to talk about that. So I needed to create what I think of as the opening. So I would create an opening for them to ask the questions, but I wouldn't put words into their mouth and I wouldn't assume what it was they wanted to know. So instead, I would just pay very close attention, create a space where it was safe for whoever, maybe it was one or two at a time to talk. And sometimes it would just be like around the kitchen table, like, hey, what's coming up? And sometimes something would surface, like somebody saying that, you know, I was cheating, which didn't even make sense in the context. And my role there was to ask, what do you mean? What do you think that means? And then embark in a line of gentle education that helps them understand that neither I nor their co-parents nor their friends' parents who were doing monogamy were wrong. And that is a tender balance. Mm. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. And and so were your kids hearing the accusations of cheating from other friends at school? Friends. So my kids were homeschooled. Um, So it was from extended family and friends. Mm. Uh, It was through you know, cousins who didn't understand and were sending things and then dance classes. Sometimes rumors would go around Mm -hmm. and it was, it, it wasn't often, I mean, this happened maybe five or six times. And so not even to every kid involved. Um, but then later as I started to actually do my work in the world, you know, I'm a jealousy researcher who researches non-monogamy, who has a podcast about non-monogamy and, (laughs) Later, the questions became much more interesting because, Mm. I mean, well, I just did an episode on my podcast about soft cock week. I love soft cock week. It's it's great. (laughs) What what a wonderful thing to celebrate. And one of my kids came home from work. Um, He's 16. No, he just turned 17. And he said, my coworker found your podcast. So while we were cleaning up the restaurant, we were all listening to your episode on soft cock week. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) That is a life, man. This is a life I did not expect. They were a choice. They knew how to shut the radio off and they didn't. I find that it is these conversations that have um, the the early conversations led to this this experience where like they'll just say that to me. They're like, yeah, this is your work. This is life. What a testament to how proud your children of are uh, you, you and your work that they can listen to your podcast with their friend and go, my mom's actually a badass. Like what she's saying is is really, and I've heard that episode. That's a fantastic episode. It's it's really interesting stuff. That's cool. It might be a little bit awkward that you know it's my mom and we're listening to <laughs> her at work. You have to laugh but at the situation. It's, it's such important stuff to be listening to, and and in a way, he's actually giving his friend the gift of that knowledge that you're imparting. It's it's beautiful. Mm. That's it. So what it what it reminded me of too though is that the kids are so different. So so 
this particular kid is like, yeah, oh my God, that's so ridiculous. And loves telling stories about us at college and loves like loves that. Now, I have another kid who's a senior at UCLA and is like, ah, yeah, that's the work my mom does. And he sighs <laughs> and he's like, oh. he like respects it, but he's also like, what the, what? Oh man. And it, and And sometimes people will realize like, that he's my child. And he's like, yeah. And he's a little less into it. And yet, he's also the one who everybody goes to on his floor to solve problems. So mm. <laughs> it does rub off. And it's not its not that I... It's the being comfortable talking about the unmentionable stuff, right? Making mm. everything talk aboutable in our house. It changes everything. And, mm. and, you know, it's funny because none of my kids identify as polyamorous and they're all of dating age and they're all like, eh, it's not really for me it, mm -hmm. because it's not for them. Like maybe it'll be at some point, who knows, but like, it's not about indoctrination. I just let them talk about what they needed to talk about. It's amazing to hear this because this is something that Liam and I, we talk about it, we think about it. Our friends ask us, what's going to happen when your son's older? What's going to happen if Instagram is still around and he sees your Instagram page or if he gets on the podcast or, you know, he's going to know that you two host a polyamorous monthly support group, which we do, you know, what what are we going to do? And we're just sort of thinking, okay, well, he's, he's five in October, so we're not dealing with that just yet. So it's amazing to hear how these things go and just you know it's very inspiring to us because we would love to be in the position where we can just keep the conversation open for him not put it in his face but this is what we do we have these conversations and it's not necessarily about the particular goings on it's about you know larger philosophies on love different values that we have on right. you know autonomy and respect and boundaries and freedom you know that's really what the messaging is with it it's not so much about you know yeah sure when i upload my Instagram photo, there's a cute art, artistic nude that uh, Liam has taken of me, you know? Like, sure. but it's Yeah. Because you have a body. Because <laughs> I have a body. <laughs> I feel like our son's friends are going to love coming around to say hi. Well, Liam was saying that recently. He was saying, what's going to happen, you know, when our, when our son's 20 and his mates are going to think, oh, you know, Abby, you know, she's, she's a cute mom or something. Because I know, Liam, you, you had the hots on some I of your friend's so, mums. So many of my friend's <laughs> mums, you know. The MILF thing's a real thing. That's a, yeah. that's, a, that's, a, that's a real deal. And, you know, the thing is, like, these kids are also growing up that – you aren't the only one like this is mm. this is one mm. of the paths. Many parents actively live their life with a an open door. Like there is a part of themselves that is open that wouldn't have been just, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago when I was first mm. open. No, there was nothing to share or tell. Like, I think I had a Facebook page and I mostly just posted pictures of running on it like it. And now <laughs> mm -hmm. that's not the life we live. We are all saturated in the image. And, you know, the other thing that I'm reminded of is that the, when the kids have questions now, their questions are so much more nuanced. They're open to a really interesting conversation. And that has time and time again pulled their friends into just interesting conversations where I can provide them actual, you know, <laughs> objectively researched information about the range of relational and sexuality topics that they're very curious about. So it really puts them in a position to have access some, to something they wouldn't if I felt like I had to be hidden, if I had to be closeted. I'm very lucky to not feel like I'm closeted. And 
You know, this comes up in my own dating all the time. I date people and they're like, oh, but I don't want to be, you know, like, I, I don't want to be like seen on your social media. I'm like, yeah, I get it. That's of course. <laughs> um, like I would, I would never put somebody on my social media who did not ask to be there. But also like, I also have people come to my house and my kids don't usually know why. Like I have friends at the house. I have people I date at the house. They're not asking questions about what's happening with any mm -hmm. of those people. So this is where like, I'm reminded of those early conversations that you have about, you know, your parents' sex life. Yeah, you don't have those. Nobody wants those. So we don't have them. It's fine. Did you ever find there was any kind of pushback from uh, like other parents at school or anything like that? Because that's something that we think a little bit about. You know, it's like if the if the parents at school find out, well, you know, we're not getting invited to play dates or, you know, that sense of stigma that's still, I think it is lessening. But have you ever found and noticed that within your own experience? I'm not going to lie. Yes. Um, I think of my story as, again, it's it's a cautionary tale because I didn't go about this well. Like I didn't I didn't take a gentle entry. So uh, my my kids were quite ostracized from their friends when my when I came out as polyamorous, which was very unfortunate because the people they were ostracized from um I very soon found out that many of them were swingers, met like more than half mm. the group. This is fascinating. Right? Like they, so they were swinging and that was okay because nobody had feelings and nobody talked about it. And it was all like behind closed doors. But because I had come out and said, no, I'm in love. I'm, I'm in love. And I wasn't even having sex with anybody, I, like any, anybody except the person I was married to. I, it was just about like, oh, I have all these feelings. What do I do? And, um, the other parents were really bothered. And now this was 15 years ago. It, I do mm. believe that the conversation has changed. Um, I happen to live in a relatively progressive part of the United States. I live in Massachusetts. So it's it's really not too bad for me. I feel um, pretty well accepted, even in my relatively conservative town here. And 15 years ago, it did. It cost my kids friends. And I wish I had gone about the the exposure differently. I wish that I had had language to talk about it in a different way. I also wish that I had been able to start community events right away and say like, hey, this is normal if we because if we mm. normalized it in the community, then those people would have been less scared because at heart they were scared. And I mm. see that clearly from here. I'm like, oh, they were scared. And so they panicked and that cost my kids friends. And that sucks. I have mm. and I find no excuse for it. But people do a lot of crappy things because of fear. Mm. Mm. Not pleasant. We've had a situation recently where we're not out to our friends, to, to our child's, you know, the parents are, are in the class. You yeah. know, it's, it's very much sort of on a need to know we're out to the people within our community. Of course, we're out. We have this podcast, but not everybody's we aware of it. We were in the it. newspaper the other day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we were in the Sydney Morning Herald. But <laughs> I, think, I think that, you know, the class, mate, the, the class parents didn't, didn't see that. But I didn't realise. But recently I did get TikTok. And uh, Liam had been encouraging me for a while and I didn't realise that with TikTok, all of your contacts all sync. Your contacts. Yep. So then, and I, and I barely go on it. I've only uploaded four videos and then I went on and I checked it and the father of one of the, of my son's 
best friend had been had watched these TikTok videos and I immediately reached out to them. And well, you I, immediately had a, a, a mini breakdown, I think. I had a breakdown. I was like, let's delete everything. Scorched earth. We weren't here. <laughs> <laughs> We're monogamous. We never right? existed. Exactly. Witness protection. Exactly. <laughs> and it's just unfortunate because they had been the one – our one group of friends that I'd felt quite nervous to come out to still our parents know, you know, our different, so, you know, people, different people who were already friends with, they already know. But as far as the school friends know, I was nervous about this one particular couple because our son is best friends with their son and they're a little bit more conservative than us. You know, there's, there are different sort of cultural beliefs, but they're very open-minded people. But still, even when people are very progressive and they are open-minded thinkers, the polyamory and the non-monogamy can still hit really hard. Um, and I did message it can her. Come out of the blue. It can come out of the blue. Mm. And I did message her and she was so kind, the wife. I messaged her and we had a little back and forth about it. And she said that they were quite shocked and they don't really know anything about it. But as long as we're happy. And she said, I would be too jealous and, you know, said those things. And we had a bit of a back and forth and everything's okay, but I can feel the change now. It's just, you know, when I see them at school pick up and drop off, I can just, it's very subtle. Liam's not picking up on it as much. I'm, I'm giving a bit more of benefit of the doubt at this stage, I think. Yeah, I, but I, yeah. maybe I'm a hypersensitive person. I can just feel that subtle shift. You know, there used yeah. to be the hug, hello, now it's just the big smile, you know. Mm, and it yeah. is, you know, so, yeah, it is It is a thing that happens, you know. So that's a very small, on a very small scale to what you would have felt, you know, back then with, you know, it being a much more extreme situation. Yeah, it, you know, I think though this is this is part of why I live my life so so out now is to mm. just provide like one more example of I am also super boring. Like I have a 12 passenger <laughs> van. I spent most of my time last week talking to kids about anime. Like my life is just as boring as everybody else's. Um and I date Mm. and mm. and uh, like that that's 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 it that like there is something that's destigmatizing about just being able to do that and i'm lucky to get to but also i mean i i do it because it is painful to imagine that moment where you notice the big smile in instead of the hug it it, mm. it like that that saddens me and when my clients ask me about this oftentimes or even like i'm dating somebody right now who's like oh your story is it's like a cautionary tale i don't want to come out there socially monogamous and like mm. I, I hear you and like the more of us who acknowledge the reality of our situation the less stigmatized this has to be it, and so I think it's walking the line between, for me, it's about my safety. As long as I feel safe mm. enough, I'm going to be out, out, mm. out, out. So for me, like, like that's it. I'm, I'm there all in all the ways. But for a lot of people, the fear lies in those subtleties, right? They're afraid of the smaller things happening. But in my experience, it only gets more intense as the kids get older. So it, it was actually easier you know, my youngest kid is 16 now. He was two at the time. He's never known any other life. This mm. is just how it is. He mm. didn't experience any change or loss. He has instead experienced people being curious and kind of some of them even a little weirded out. And he's like, yeah, but this is just my parents. Like, this is this is my mom, my dog, like whatever. This is just what they do. And mm. this is their life. And 
his experience then has actually been gentler because he didn't have this abrupt time when he had to adjust. He's just been like, oh, this is just, I don't know, parents doing parent things. Weird. It's fascinating that uh, you notice that the, the, the hypocrisy amongst all these parents who are kind of pointing the finger at you and, and that it was coming from people who practice swinging and, and I guess, you know, uh, that type of uh, form of non-monogamy. Right. How did you feel about that, <laughs> that sense of hypocrisy? Because that must have been maddening. I, maddening. Yeah. Like a, a lot of therapy since then to process mm. that because it's um because I also there was nothing I could do like everybody gets to make their decisions about how they're going to spend their time and who they're going to relate to I was angry at the time but I was also I assumed that at some point that would wear off like oh they'll get over it but then mm. time went by and they never got over it a few of them kind of circled back I think a couple of them are friends with me on like Facebook but the people who were my core, yep, they just up and left. They were gone. Mm. And so, yes, maddening, but mostly heartbreaking because the mm. hypocrisy was bad enough. But understanding that I had been friends with people that bigoted really upset me. Mm. I didn't realize that. So it happened to me. So it's easy for me to be upset. But now that's 15 years in the past. I have amazing friends now who embrace me fully, like, I have just an um, incredible circle of people around me. But I was friends with people who were going to throw away a decade or longer friendship because mm. of someone's sex life. I, you know what? I mm. actually don't want to be friends with them. Not actually. Mm. Um, so I also am a little incensed, a little like, oh, okay. And a little, a little indignant at this point too. Mm. It's, it's a whole range of things. And for anybody who's going through it right now, if you are in that moment, like you're just describing, you're in that moment where you're trying to figure out, like, what does this mean? And what could we do? Then I would say what I've learned is every time I've tried to hide it so that I could preserve a relationship. So I went to grad school since then. I've gone through multiple degree programs and where it might have been easier to hide. Every time I tried to hide it, I've tried to hide it while I ran different businesses before I became entered this particular world always I felt that I felt it surrounding me so I outed myself on a really really big stage one that I don't own I outed myself during a TEDx so I, mm. I did a TED talk and TED owns that I don't own it um so I could there were no backsies it was the most liberating thing I had ever done because mm. mm. there's no reason to ever to hide again power to you. I love that TED talk that you gave. It's amazing. Thanks. Um, I'm interested in this. Would you see it often in, in your work, this divide between the swinging community and the polyamorous community? Because we have definitely come across that. It's almost, yeah, it is like the swinging community don't want to get mixed up with the polyamorous community. But there's can be such overlap as well. And Liam and I find that really interesting because we're somewhere on the spectrum. We don't really know if we're polyamorous or if we're more in the swinging camp or something in between you know we just we just don't know we just go with what feels right and sometimes that's deepened heartfelt love feelings and other times it's something more light and playful so I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that I run group programs and up until I started running those as I, I used to work with individuals couples triads quads and all my work was private and I thought I was seeing some trends around this, but it wasn't until I started group work. So now I have up to 20 people in a group. I'm, I run five or six groups at a time. And these 
the, the range of the spectrum in any one group, the spectrum of people absolutely ranges from people who, if they met out at some event, would probably describe themselves as like, yep, as swingers. Some of them would describe themselves as relationship anarchists. Some of them, you know, in polyamory. And many of them would have no idea what label to use. But lots of those people do protect some aspects of exclusivity. Lots of them. And so that could be like lots of people who fall into the polyamorous camp or the relationship anarchist camp might might hurl the the pejorative of like that's just swinging. Right. They might like treat that as if it's accusatory. Right. And, Mm. And try to draw these things as if they're separate. But I just don't see that. I see people always falling into a range of of expansivity versus exclusivity and and across so many different domains of their life. And the people who fully express that can communicate it to the people they're interacting with. Great. Awesome. I don't think there there doesn't need to necessarily be these dichotomous um, containers that we hold ourselves separate because I see people in my groups learning from each other and learning, for instance, um, recently in a group, somebody who definitely falls more toward the swinger and the we keep, you know, a lot of monogamous context and also lots of sexual expansivity. They were talking about some of the things that they kept exclusive in their life, and that really shone a light into a dark corner for some of the other members of the group who were like, I I thought I had to open everything. I thought it all had to be open, and but it wasn't working for them. So they kept running up into, into this like really difficult territory because they were trying to be open in ways that didn't work for either of them mm. and also not communicating that appropriately to the people they were dating. And so they kept dating people beyond their means, basically, beyond their emotional means. Mm. That was incredibly hurtful. It is, to my experience, way better to hear what somebody's available for, to hear not just what their label is, but how they enact it, what their principles are, what their relationship Mm. philosophy is. Tell me about that. And then let me decide whether that fits into what I have to offer. So I date people who are socially monogamous, that, that's fine for me. It's not mm. my favorite. Like, I love to be able to be out with people and be totally, like, all embraced. But it's not available. And if I know that going in, then I get to consent to it. Mm. So this is where I, I really think that the conversation is evolving. It's evolving quickly. But we need to remember to not yeah, hurl labels at other people and and not to decide that one way or the other is necessarily better and instead return labels to the individual. Do you find when you're dating people, do people get a little bit intimidated to date you? I'm just sitting here listening to you talk. You're so amazing. And then I have to know, read way more books before just, going on a date with you. Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> do people get intimidated? I mean, you, you're so across everything and you're so experienced and you're an educator and a coach in this world. You know, what, 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 what's sort of the response when you ask someone out for a drink? Do they have a panic attack? <laughs> And also be, they would be so, you know, rushed with all of the excited, excitement of feelings. But wow. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I don't think, so I gave the TED talk in um, 2019, right at the end. And so then we went into the pandemic, right? Mm. And so I wasn't dating. I had, I hadn't, I was uh, finishing up my dissertation then um, and defended and literally flew home into like the last flight's landing. So I hadn't been dating anyone because I was just busy. I was busy defending my dissertation, was not involved in any serious relationship. So we were like, you know what? 
we're good. Let's just like close the bubble. Like we'll just, we already have seven kids. That's hard enough. So I gave this TEDx, uh, outed myself and my dating profile was still up. So people were starting to know who I was, but I wasn't dating anyone. So then there was this like lag of about 18 months, 16 months. So when I came out again to date, I did notice a change and it was it's awkward mostly because I don't feel any different, but now I have a public, I, I have this public face mm. and often what happens is I, I notice that people assume that I won't want to date them, but mm. I'm not looking for other people to be like an expert. This is my job. Like this is what I do. I, I mm. love that. At the same time, um, it's also kind of, it's kind of strange to like have sometimes when I'm dating people like they they have access to literally hundreds of hours of me talking <laughs> yes and and talking to my anchor partner like my podcast playing with fire is like with my mm. anchor partner where we're just talking so they have this like inside view and it's both exciting and <laughs> odd because they can just like talk to me as if they know me but I don't know mm -hmm. them yet so mm -hmm. it might be me who's more intimidated than them because they can get to know me and I still have to get to know them the old fashioned way. I went on a date with someone a couple of years ago. Oh, no, maybe it was just last year, actually. And he was living in another city. He was living in Melbourne and he drove up to Canberra, um, which is about an eight hour drive. And, and as he got to the date, he said hi to me. And then he said, I just finished all of your like six hours worth of your podcast episodes. <laughs> and then we sat there and we had this date where he knew everything about me, um, you know, everything that I'd shared and I knew nothing about him. It was just fascinating. And later on, you know, I was saying to Liam, I don't know if this is, this is a good thing or this is a bad thing. I mean, it's great in the sense that, you know, non-monogamous relationships are so deep and complex and involved and he was able to have that insight, but I didn't know if it was good or bad. I mean, the information asymmetry was just remarkable. I mean, as he stepped foot into the, into the date, suddenly he knew everything. But, but one amazing thing about it, and maybe you would find this as well, uh, Jolly, is that that they have an understanding of your relationship with your partner. And because yes. you do co-host that amazing podcast with your partner, they have a, an insight. And that's not to say that you share everything about your relationship on the, the oh, podcast. Practically, but, though. <laughs> yes. It is a very honest uh, portrait of, of where you guys are at. So so I think they're probably, you would find a benefit perhaps in that and, and when you meet people. I do. Yeah. So there are two ways that it benefits me. One, um, I've noticed that I can rule people out. Like if like I have gone on dates, especially with cisgender men of a certain age who like want to mansplain to me jealousy after having listened to my <laughs> podcast. And I got to tell you, you're not going to get laid that night, fellas. <laughs> it's not happening. Don't do it. Um, it, and it's super awkward for me because I'm like, how do they not know that that's the wrong move? Even if you wow. want to do it, like, just don't like you're it's not happening. Um, but the but the cool thing, the thing I really do love is um, some of my partners really love it and they find it really sexy to be able to listen to my voice and be able to hear the insights. So that's really yummy. And my metas. So my mm. metamors get to like hear the inside of my sickeningly devoted partnership with my anchor partner like it is I just love him so much and we have such a strong like solid bond so I've mm. had people who are really new and they're like I'm pretty intimidated and they don't typically want to know anything about but they'll hear an episode and they're like oh no that's cool you're good 
there's just this relaxation mm. of like, oh, they they they're they're walking the talk and they're and they're exposing themselves. Not to mention the fact that, you know, my whole livelihood is based on this. I kind of have to behave myself. So I can't be the crazy metamorph. Can't do it. Can't pull it off. <laughs> Not happening. <laughs> Oh my gosh, they must listen and then want to become your friend immediately. I do love that feature of it. And it's really mm. interesting because then we're learning about like, okay, where are the boundaries and what are the, like, how do we do this? And, you know, mm. it, yeah, it's fascinating. Do you find yourself uh, dating monogamous people as well? Or do you find your kind of dating pool exclusively has to be a very uh, hip or at least open to, to being hip kind of crowd? So I used to date people who were monogamous, like, or especially once, once the dating app started opening up the label so that it says, you know, open to either. Mm. Um, I spent a couple of years dating that way. And what happened was over and over again, I would be, um, I would be made into a backup girlfriend and I hated it. So that whole situation that plays out, I'm sure that you've seen it, um, where, they're, we're dating. Now they've met somebody monogamous. So now we've, we can't mm-hmm. see each other. And often they have to like unfriend me from socials and like erase my being. And then they break up. And bizarrely, I get a phone call. So they didn't erase me from everything. It took two mm. people um, doing that to me twice. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. So when somebody is not firmly like several years into their non-monogamy, I presume that I may be disposed of and I prepare myself for that um, by reminding me and them that like this is this is a one shot deal. You can break up with me anytime you want, but like now erase my number and any mm. nice pictures I sent you um, because we're like I can't be in this position of being pulled back into your mm. cycle of seeing polyamorous people as disposable pickups like that. That's just that does mm. not work for me. Even mm. though I do have, you know, I mean, we can all have a little rejection kink if we want it. But still, that is just, I don't want that to be my life. That is the cruelest kink of all, surely. The rejection kink. It really kink. is. And so <laughs> many of us have it. So many of us have it. Wow. Fascinating. That a, yeah. I mean, the, it's, it's, it's really interesting, like the, the concept of that, that asymmetry between, as well, between a monogamous dating person and dating someone with the polyamorous, because you've done so much introspection about how you deal with relationships and potentially, and, and this is not always the case, but potentially it could be the case that that monogamous person hasn't really identified a lot of the things that you've really spent, you know, uh, a whole uh, life d- kind of devoting towards <laughs> I've been struggling more and more recently to to reconcile the fact that like I have my work and I want to be open to dating anyone and I have to really like the person to just mm. be in the process like where they are because it's not my job to teach and guide and yet like when you're in a relationship with somebody who's working on relationships well it is a little complicated because for instance I have a tool or a method for like every problem you could possibly imagine, especially Mm. in your first five or six years while Mm. you're just trying to figure stuff out. And so for me, it's about learning how to hold my boundaries, but also check my bandwidth because I'm not always available for the kind of relationship somebody who's newer at this might want. And at the same time, connection's connection. I'm dating somebody right now who's, you know, they're in their very first year, their very first months really of being open but the connection's really solid. So mm. that's awesome. And I have to just keep 
breathing through the fact that I don't know where they'll be in a mm. month or even a day because that's sort of the territory of being in those early months and years. And yeah, I mean, but the truth is a long time ago, I made peace with the fact that all relationships can end in a moment. I mean, mm. I, I had a 17-year relationship, 13-year marriage, and in the shower one night when I said the wrong thing and 45 days later, I was no longer living there. Um, relationships mm. can end. I've also lost my entire family of origin has passed, right? So mm. like, I, not, tomorrow's not promised. So try not to worry too much about exactly what I think the relationship will turn into and just be present to whether I'm enjoying it now. When you jumped into that that kind of world of non-monogamy, did you was there a stage? Obviously, you had these really strong feelings who, for the person who's now your partner. But was there ever something within you that made maybe thought maybe I'd be more open to like a more casual thing, like maybe a swinging thing? Maybe non-monogamy doesn't have to be fully polyamorous, or did it just kind of open up these the this flood of polyamory within you, and you were like, no, this is this is my relationship direction. No, I was uh, okay. So this is this is a story Ken and I tell a lot because I think um, it's a good reminder for people who get. I know we use the term polybombed these days to say like, so your partner comes home and tells you that they're polyamorous, and now everything has to change. I don't love the term; it's it's kind of problematic. But the experience of of just having your partner say, "I want more relationships," can be a shock to the system. It was certainly a shock to my husband's system at the time. And for that, I am in eternally sorry. I had no idea like what I was saying um, because, well, I'd fallen in love a lot with lots of women and it had never bothered him. Um, but when mm. I fell in love with somebody who had a penis, it did. I didn't realize that that would happen, but it caused a lot of breakdown. The thing is, though, what happened, what played out for us was um, – my husband at the time just kept throwing obstacles in the way. And all I was asking for was, I said, I fell in love. I had this like full blown, like, oh my God, I've, I've known my, my now partner, my anchor partner, my whole life, literally my whole life, like since my mother was pregnant with me. So I've known him the whole time. And then I had wow. this like monumental experience one night where I all of a sudden felt how like, oh, I know this person. I I want to know them better. I wanted to have long conversations with them. I wanted to go for walks with them. I didn't ask for sex. We didn't have sex actually for six months after that moment happened. It was, it was a long time of waiting and figuring things out. And the thing that drove us away from any idea of, yeah, casual fling. In fact, we say all the time we probably would have had a casual fling and probably have burned out. But people kept throwing obstacles in our way. Not just my husband, but also our friend group that started ousting us and stuff. And you know what Jack Warren says about attraction plus obstacles mm. equals desire? So mm. every time an obstacle was thrown in our way, it drove us closer into this idea, this imagination of star-crossed lovership. I don't even know whether any of that was freaking true. I have no idea. I know now, absolutely, I would, I would take a bullet for him. But then... 
oh my God, I wanted to slap him as much as I wanted to fuck him. I like, <laughs> he drove me insane. You can do both. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, now I know all these things, but it was so hard to imagine from there. Really? I, yeah, I wanted, we, the thing we asked for first was we wanted to be able to go to Sunday brunch together and like, just hang out and talk. And that like, it was a total no go for my partner. And it, pissed our friends off and like it, it just seemed wrong like the the husbands the men in the circle did not like do alone things with the women mm. mm-hmm. and every time those obstacles were put in place it just drove this sense of like oh we're kind of meant to be together and before you knew it we really did want to have sex and we really did want to yeah invade each other's personal space quite a lot um and lucky for me, his wife at the time was totally into it. They were already open. She was like, yeah, that's that's cool. Um, mm-hmm. So it was fine for her. They'd been don't ask, don't tell. So it was a very different dynamic. Mm-hmm. But um, I think without all those obstacles, it would have been a very different picture. The forbidden fruit. Mm. Yes. Forbidden. Yes. So hot. My goodness. So well, I, we are very aware of your time and we thank you for spending so much of it with us. Um, but would you mind telling our listeners if they want to find out more about your work and your amazing coaching that you do? We know you run these support groups. Can you tell us a little bit more about where our listeners can find you? Yeah. So if people are looking for support, I strongly recommend hopping on to the website, theyearofopening.com. Um, there you can hop on the website. You can learn a little bit more about what I do and learn a little bit about how specifically I support people over the course of a whole year together. You join, you're with a cohort, you are together with your cohort, which is usually a really unusual experience for people, like staying together with a group of people talking about the ups and downs of their relationship. It mm. is a completely life-changing experience. Um, we're now enrolling the fifth, sixth, and seventh cohorts, and um, it's it's really something special. So you can go to the year of and find out more about that. And you can always follow me on Instagram and TikTok. I'm at Dr. Jolie underscore Hamilton, D-R-J-O-L-I underscore Hamilton, like the musical. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been so interesting. And thank, just thank you so much for sharing so much of your own personal journey, your experience as being a polyamorous mother, everything that you went through. We're really, really um, grateful for all of your sharing. And we'd love to have you on the podcast again sometime. And we hope that our listeners, I'm sure they're going to check out all of your work. We'll be putting all of your information um, in our podcast show notes. So listeners, you can find all of Dr. Jolie Hamilton's work there. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Liam and Abby both. And thank you for putting together this amazing podcast. I love listening to the episodes myself. It's always a pleasure. So thank you. Thanks, Jolie.